The mob that was commissioned by the Jewish Sanhedrin came to arrest Jesus. They abandoned him. We're far from perfect. You remember Judas, he actually left the meal and, and then established the, the deal for silver to turn Jesus over to his enemies. And the 11 who were his best of friends, even they abandoned him. Next week, you're so kind, you're so kind. And next week you get uh, David Lawrence, our, our, ministry, uh, our missionary that we support, who does work in the Middle East. He'll be here next Sunday. Uh, this morning I'm continuing in the series, The Limits of Freedom, The Demands of Love. This is in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Pastor Nick has um, been doing a phenomenal job walking us through. Um, it is also Communion Sunday, and Pastor Nick has asked me to preach on this text, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, which is one of the core communion texts in the scriptures. So what we're going to do this morning is we're gonna celebrate communion as a part of the sermon. So in about 15 minutes, uh, those who are here, our servers for communion are gonna come forward, receive the elements, and they're gonna serve you. And, then, and so about 15 minutes of preaching then, and then about 30 minutes afterwards, actually more like 20. Now these are 20 Nick minutes. Now what that means is a Nick minute is uh, double the time. So 20 means about 40, 40 to 50, no, sorry, sorry. So that's a joke, it's a joke. So, but really, it's gonna be uh, 15 minutes before, 20 minutes after, just so you can have an expectation of, of what's moving forward. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we're just uh, thankful that we can come this Sunday and worship you and remember all that you have done for us uh, through the cross, through resurrection, you have made us your children and we are yet still amazed by that. Bless us as we learn anew from your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First thing we're gonna do is read 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. You uh, feel free to read along with me in your pew Bibles. It's page 1784, thanks David. 1784 in your pew Bibles. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you, as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats the bread without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. To better understand the abuse that's happening at the Lord's Supper, it's important that you know that the, uh, the early communion was also served with a common meal. And the, Paul's issue isn't so much with the fact that they had consecrated bread and wine and then other food. The issue that's, that's really front and center here is that their meal was not marked by love and unity and remembrance of the cross. It was marked by self-indulgence. The language, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, the other gets drunk in verse 21. Most probably refers to eating of a private meal by the wealthy. And it turns out from reading authors from that time, Roman authors, Pliny and Juvenile in particular, that this was a common practice. A feast would be held and the rich and wealthy would have larger and more privileged portions and the average person might have very little. And the, the, the challenge here, the problem here, is that apparently this Roman tradition has somehow seeped into the service, the holy consecrated service of the Lord's communion. So what Paul is doing here is he is writing to correct this abuse of the Lord's service. Now we know for certain that when communion was first established by Christ, when the first believers in Jerusalem had communion, that there were no such uh, abuses, no such violations. For in Acts 2, 42 through 47, the scripture says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one, to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in each other's homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we read that in the early church, when they celebrated communion in Jerusalem, there was a tremendous spirit of unity. 
There was a sp tremendous spirit of generosity. If I saw you in need, I would give. If you saw me in need, you would give. We see that there is this fellowship that edified the first believers, and it also brought glory to God. So as the onlooking people in Jerusalem saw this new church forming and this love so uncommon in their time, they recognized that something new had happened. Maybe there was something to this Holy Spirit and this gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we think about fellowship here in our church, this is, the, this is kind of the gold standard for Christian fellowship. Uh, this is what we aspire to. This is what all of the churches aspire to, is to reach this level of, of, of sanctification, this level of properness, appropriateness in our Christian walk. So this morning, what I want to discuss from the Scripture are three things. I want to discuss two specific problems with the way the Corinthians were celebrating communion. I want to talk about Christ's blueprint for the celebration of his supper. And then Paul concludes with two solutions to the abuses at the Lord's table. The problem at the Lord's table is very clear. It's in verse 22. The rich in particular are moving forward with a hearty meal while the poor look on without having enough to eat. Now, the effect of this behavior is twofold. The first thing it does it, it, is it, it humiliates the poor. Think about it this way. About two months ago or so, Kathleen Schrader led a group of adults, some maybe 20 or so, along with their children to a, a missions trip in Guatemala. And I'm told that the, one of the first duties that they had was to go to an area where there was a garage dump and to, to serve what they had to, to the people there. So they had a hundred sandwiches, they had blankets, they had toothpaste, and there was just a small number of people that were there. Uh, strangely enough, oddly enough, I think for us, given our wealth, around where the garbage dump was set up, people had these tiny little shacks where they lived. And their hope was that when the garbage was brought in to be dumped, that they could somehow live off of whatever scraps they could find in the garbage dump. So this is the context for which our missionaries from High Point Church were came into. And so they served, and then they had a chance to give testimonies. They had an opportunity to sing Christian songs, and in fact, they sang a song in Spanish. Um, but it wasn't too long before what they had in terms of food and cl clothing ran out. And in desperation, they ran back to the bus and to see if they could scrounge up some breakfast bars or anything that was there. But soon they, they ran that back to, to where the folks were and, and they ran out. And they were de devastated. If you talk to those who were there, they were like, this was, and we came here and, and we know we're doing good work, but it was just tough to see uh, more people keep coming and not, not to be able to give, to show more love tangibly with food and clothing to the folks who were there. Now imagine this, a little bit later, let's say the missionaries got hungry and they were still in the area and they decided to go get their, their lunch bags and open up their food and enjoy their lunch in the midst of, of the poor that were among them, right? Immediately, their testimony would be undone. All the grace and all the love and charity that was poured out in the name of Jesus would be undone by that selfish act. Of course, that's not what occurred, 
But when you think of what the Corinthians were doing, at the Lord's table, the rich having sumptuous meals and watching the poor stand by with nothing, you get a sense for what a tremendous error this was and what was really at stake. And so that's the first thing, is that this humiliated the poor. The second thing that this did was it showed contempt for Jesus Christ himself and his church. Now, we know the church is God's prized possession. He gave his life, he gave his blood to establish the church. And as I try to grasp this, as I try to understand the sacrifice, the tremendous sacrifice that God made, the closest I can get is to think about myself as a meager husband and the sacrifices that are required of a godly husband who wants a holy family. We get up early and we work late and we pour everything that we have into those children with the hope that they will grow up to be holy and godly in God's sight and, for, and reproduce more saints afterwards. We put everything into that endeavor. So that's what God has done. He has put everything into building the body of Christ. He didn't hold anything back. All of his spiritual blessings have been poured out on us. All he had was a life to give, and he gave it. And so this is the situation. And he did this to build a unified church. And his vision is that people from every nation, people from every tongue, people of every age, black and white, young and old, would come together and serve Jesus Christ. That's the vision of God. And we stand in awe when we see that vision being fulfilled in our midst. But what had happened is the rich in Corinth were showing their contempt for God's vision by dividing the church, rich against the poor. That's the, the situation that we find ourselves here in the text. The poor are being humiliated. There's divisions in Corinth. There is hypocrisy in the body of Christ. And at the end of verse 22, Paul says he cannot praise the church for this. Instead, he must correct their grievous error. And he does so in two ways. First, by reminding them of how Christ established the ordinance of communion in the first place, and then by giving them two specific instructions to correct the problem. I want to talk about the blueprint for communion. This is a tradition that we received from the Lord. Paul doesn't say that this came from himself, that the words of the institution were received by the apostles and then passed along to him. And what he's doing is, is how the gospel has always been spread by giving us the very words of God. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance for believers. We have been commanded by Christ to remember his death, burial, and resurrection that brought about salvation to the whole world. Believers are those who have confessed with, with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believers are those who have believed in their heart that the Father rose the Son from the grave. Believers are those who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. At High Point Church, we invite all Christians who have that kind of fellowship and testimony, without distinctions based on denominations, to come and celebrate communion at our table. By eating this meal, what you are saying is, 
I believe that Jesus is Lord. Even more particular than that, you're saying that I am a child of God. If that isn't your testimony, even today, our prayer at High Point is that you will receive Jesus Christ as Lord. But at this time, the believers are going to share communion. And so I invite the, uh, our serving team to stand and you to stand as we start in a brief word of prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we, we recognize that you are our only Lord and Savior. We recognize that you didn't hold anything back to deal with the sin and the wrath of God that was due the sin. That you came yourself and were the perfect sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice to the Father. We thank you for your life that you offered for us and the life that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And dust myself up. I can ask him for forgiveness and I can get back in line and do the things that a godly man or woman, right, should do. Jesus died. And so um, not only are my sins forgiven, your sins are forgiven. That means I can forgive any sins that are against me because of what Jesus has done. It's an amazing thing that even Peter, one of his very closest disciples, denied him three times while Jesus was under interrogation. But then after the Spirit came, he, along with the 11 who had abandoned Christ, were filled with the Holy Spirit and sent out to share the gospel, which eventually resulted in all of us coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you remember the Samaritan woman at the well? You remember her? She was the one in John chapter 4 that had five husbands. And even the one that she was with at the given time was not her husband. And Jesus had grace sufficient for her. He said that if she would receive him, that she would receive water, living water that would bubble up into eternal life. And she was so astounded that immediately she grasped that freedom and salvation and went out and shared the gospel with the people in Samaria, bringing many more people into the faith. I'm trying to say that in Jesus Christ, we have an awesome salvation. And what I don't want you to do no matter how many times you celebrate communion, no matter how many years you reflect on the grace and mercy that you receive at the cross of Jesus Christ, you want to remember the wonder and the awe that Jesus saved a wretch like you and me. And it cost him his very life. So he held nothing back for us. And that is what we remember when we come to the communion table. The other thing we think about is the Passover, which was the original Passover, was a remembrance to be kept in Israel forever. On the night of the Passover that was first celebrated, Moses instructed the people to take a one-year-old male lamb without spot or blemish, to kill it, to put its blood in bowls, to take hyssop, dip it into the bowls, mark the doorposts, and that very evening, the Lord would pass over the Hebrews, go into Egypt, and kill all the firstborn of both men and animals. And what they were supposed to do at that Passover supper was to take that whole lamb and combine it with unleavened bread, 
bread with no yeast. They didn't have time to wait for the dough to rise because at midnight, the death angel, the Lord came in and wiped out the firstborn in all of Egypt. And very shortly thereafter, the scripture says that Pharaoh, grief-stricken, called Moses into him and said, you and your people get out of here as fast as you can. In fact, we'll give you gold and silver to, to help your journey be easier. They plundered the Egyptians on their way out. And that is the original Passover. But when Jesus was celebrating the Lord's Supper, he instituted and reinterpreted the meal. Eating the Passover lamb was no longer sufficient for maintaining fellowship with God. It was superseded by eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ, symbolized by the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. You see, Jesus is the manna that came down from heaven, not the manna that Moses and the Hebrews ate in the desert and died. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God who came to earth, brought the gospel, healed, died, was, and was rose again by the Father so that we have eternal life. The bread is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our spiritual food. So when Jesus established the Lord's Supper, he anew replaced the manna, the old manna, that a person would eat and die, and replaced it with faith in himself, for which a man could eat and would never die. I like that kind of manna. In addition, he, he brought his own blood. And so in the original Passover, it was the blood of the, the lamb that really just pointed forward to Jesus Christ an animal, and then every year thereafter, when the priests would go into the temple on the Day of Atonement, uh, this was the temporary provision that pointed to the Lamb of God who would come and who would take away the very sins of the world. And through the stripes on, of Jesus, through the wrath that God poured out on Jesus Christ, you and I are saved. No matter what your particular sin, or what situation you may find yourself in, the salvation of God is available today for you to receive. That is the new covenant. Now what I wanna to say to you is that the new covenant is far superior to the old covenant. The new covenant, the parties were between God and Israel. The old covenant, excuse me, God and Israel. And the way it was established is that you could, you could either accept it or reject it. That's true in the, in, the, in the new as well. You can either accept Jesus Christ and receive eternal life, receive the Holy Spirit, receive oneness in our fellowship, or you can reject it and be an unbeliever. So, the, so the, the, that part is their symmetry. The difference, though, is that all can come to faith in Jesus Christ, that the gospel is made available to the whole world. That's why we're so passionate about missionaries. That's why we'll host David Lawrence this upcoming week, because now the gospel is free for the 
the whole world. And it's our desire, like Jesus Christ, to see everyone come to faith in him. That's made possible in the new covenant. Now, the method of, of ratification is also distinct. In the first case, in Exodus 24, it's the blood of bulls that was sprinkled on the altar, that was sprinkled on the people. But in your and I case, spiritually, by faith in, in Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ is sprinkled on each of us. And so that when God comes to judge, when Christ returns for judgment, those of us who have eaten that bread, those of us who have been sprinkled with that blood, will receive eternal life. So there's a difference. Not blood year after year with the priest and the blood of bulls. Christ died once for, for, for all. Now, the method of transmission, Moses gave the people the book of the covenant, laws and ordinances. And yes, indeed, we do have the gospel. And this book is life. But in addition to that, the law of God has been implanted in our very hearts. Each of you, through Christ, has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I need a word that's inside me. I can't make it to the scripture. I can't make it to the cell phone. I need a word for the, for the moment in my office. I need a word for the moment in, in my community in Verona. I need the word to be living in me. I need the word to be coming out of me in my walk. That's what the new covenant did that the old covenant never could. In the Old Testament, only a few, a king, a prophet, would have the spirit. But in the New Testament, even your young child sitting on your lap who believes in Jesus Christ can astound you with the wisdom that comes from having the mind of Christ. That ever, ever happened to you? That a young saint could speak wisdom from the scripture well beyond their years? That's what's possible in the new covenant. And the duration of the Old Covenant was short. It was only intended to set the stage for Jesus Christ in the, in, the, in, the, in the story of salvation history. The Old Covenant was only intended to be temporary. But with Jesus Christ at the very end, we will see the Lamb of God. And we will see him. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. The Lamb of God is forever. And not one word that he has spoken will fall. The new covenant is eternal. The old covenant was temporary. The method of commemoration was the Passover. And this was a, a celebration. The first day was the Passover meal out of seven days of a feast of unleavened bread. But Jesus supplanted that with a celebration about his death, burial, and resurrection that we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. And the method of attaining righteousness, I like this one the most because I have a trouble with obeying things in the scripture, even at my 47 years of age. But now I'm not saved by my obedience. I am saved by my faith in Jesus Christ, and I obey him because I'm saved. God created works for me to do, but the first work is to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then I walk in the spirit in him I'll take that every day as opposed to rules and laws and ordinances give me the grace of Jesus Christ 
and give me the power to live it out. And that is what the New Testament gives. Now, I'm hoping that this still excites you, that you haven't gotten so far in your maturity in Christ to be delighted that you are a New Testament born-again believer experiencing all the freedom in Christ Jesus that he offers. That is what communion is all about. I got troubles here. What? Yep, I'm hitting one. There we go. Okay. Now, Paul, he understood all these things. In fact, this is the gospel that he preached everywhere he went. And he was disturbed when he learned of how the Corinthians were making a mockery out of um, the body of Christ, out of the gospel, by the way in which they were celebrating communion. So he gave them two things they should do to fix the problem. And I'll leave you with these two things. The first thing he said is they need to examine them themselves. They need to think about how they are treating their brothers and sisters in Christ. They need to think about their relationship with Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that in Corinth, in verse 30, that because God was not standing idly by while they were trampling on his name, some of them were sick and weak, and a few of them had already died. And what, he, what Paul was saying is, you, we need to examine our own lives, we need to examine our own selves, so that we don't have to fall under that very strict judgment. So what I, what I want to suggest to you is that there might be three things that you can do early, that you can do now, to prevent yourselves from having the strict discipline that we see in, in 1 Corinthians 11.30. You know, while it's been, while, when it's been a while since you can remember ex experiencing the peace of God, one of the early warnings is that you, you're, in your life, as you try to pray, as you try to do your devotional life, you're just not experiencing the peace of God. Now, I'm not talking about the comfort of God that all of your financial situation is straight. I'm not even talking about if you feel well, you may be sick today. But what I'm talking about is a joy and peace that comes in the midst of the normal things of life. You know, I'm starting to get a little older and the, and the aches and pains are coming. And I'm gonna, I find I'm, I'm gonna have a few of those, right? But in the midst of that, God promises that he is our peace and that we should experience peace. If, if, if you are uh, experiencing an absence of peace in your life, that could be an early sign of God's discipline. The other thing is, when some offense has occurred between you and a brother in the body of Christ, and you have been avoiding confronting the person or the problem, what can happen is your conscience can kind of just wear on you. And you know you need to rectify that situation, you, knew, you know you need to humbly confront the situation, but you avoid it, and, you, and there's something just wrong, you have a hard time getting a prayer through, it's harder to come to worship. Coming to serve in the body of Christ is harder. I'm telling you, this is an early sign of discipline, of God's judgment, telling you something's wrong. You need to get that situation rectified. The other early warning sign I think we should take advantage of is when we are convicted by a sermon, a Bible study, or words, simply some words from somebody in your sphere of influence. Sometimes 
kids or even unsaved will say something and I'll be reminded that I'm not right with God in a certain area, it'll stir me up. And what God is saying is don't ignore that. When you recognize that something is wrong in your relationship with a brother, in your relationship with the Lord, go and get that rectified immediately. This is our early warning system. Paul is trying to tell them that if they will pay attention to that, to these signs and, and, and issues, that they can avoid the judgment that comes. In verse 33, he talks about judgment uh, on believers now. But he's not talking about eternal damnation. If you read verse 33, he's talking about discipline. So God is disciplining us so that we can get ourselves right with our brothers and sisters in the church and right with him. So the Lord's Supper is not an occasion for sin and hypocrisy, but it's for mutual edification and it's for remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe this is what Paul, what's behind what Paul is saying in verse 33, where he tells the people to wait, to wait for each other. He is saying in effect, don't humiliate your poor brother at the communion table by bringing a feast while they have nothing. He's saying, if that's the case, why don't you just eat at home and this come and have the consecrated bread or wine? Or maybe this, why don't you bring what you have together like we did last uh, Sunday? Just bring things together and everybody can eat the same thing and have real Christian fellowship. And that's Paul's final admonition and instruction before he comes. Because Paul is very concerned, and Jesus is very concerned, with unity in his body. Did you know that? That's crucial. As parents with children, we know it's not good to let friction go on in our households. How much more so should we not let friction go on in the household of God? Paul, knowing this very well, wrote these words to the Corinthians. He said, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have, been, you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is just one body. There is just one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord Jesus Christ, one faith in him, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is all over all of us, works through all of us, and he's in all of us. So this morning, we recognize these words that Paul wrote in this case to the Ephesians church. And we recognize this admonition he gave to the Corinthian church about how they were abusing the Lord's Supper, having divisions, rich against poor. But I think there's a word for us today that we should do everything in our power to continue in the perfect fellowship that we're offered in Jesus Christ. Bow your heads with me as we close and as the worship team comes for our closing song. Dear Lord, we are thankful that in us there is no longer a Jew or Greek. In your sight, these uh, earthly distinctions no longer matter. 
But what matters is that a man know you, that a man receive uh, the salvation that only you can offer through your death on the cross. That's what matters to you. And so today we come to celebrate what you have done for us, together praising you aloud for all that you have done to bring us together in your body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.